Please turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We're going to consider verses 13 through to 20. Verse 13 through to 20. I'll read them now for you. Their throat is an open sepulchre. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the the way of peace have they not known? There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And that's what we're going to consider tonight. By the law is the knowledge of sin. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul acknowledged that the Jews had an advantage over the Gentile nations in that to them were committed the oracles of God, the written utterances of God, which we see throughout the Old Testament Bible from Genesis through to Malachi. Nevertheless, Paul made it very clear in verse 9 that everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike, are under sin. In other words, everyone has transgressed God's holy laws. We saw this last week. Similarly, we saw in verse 10, Paul said, there is none righteous, no, not one. In other words, there is no one who is upright before God through keeping his commandments. No, not one. We have now reached verse 13, where Paul said, their throat is an open sepulchre, with their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. And verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. The world would have you think that the human heart is what? Is essentially good. I think that's what I grew up hearing. That underneath it all, we're really quite good. We're quite nice and cuddly underneath it all. That simply is not true. It took me a long time to really see that and and understand it. And that's when I first started reading the Bible in my 30s. And the younger people in here, don't wait as long as I did. 30 years or more wasted thinking that I was essentially good. In the Old Testament, in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9, it is clearly stated that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 15, 
the scribes and Pharisees question the Lord Jesus Christ as to why his disciples transgressed, not the law of God, but transgressed the tradition of the Jews by not washing their hands when they ate bread. In response, Jesus said to them, Do not yet, do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is eliminated, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart and they defile the man. For out of the mouth, sorry, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things that defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. As such, from the heart flows all manner of evil. With that in mind, here in verse 13 and 14, Paul likened the throat to an open sepulchre, an open tomb or grave. When you think about it, a tomb contains what? It contains death and destruction. And when it is open, the stench of that death and destruction pour out of it. By likening the throat to an open sepulchre, Paul was saying in a very unflattering way to each one of us that all kinds of evil pour out of the heart via the throat. He used that as a picture of people whose deceit, poison of asps, cursing and bitterness pour out of their wicked hearts via their throats, their tongues, their lips and their mouths. Note how careful Paul Paul was to name various sins that are applicable to both Jews and Gentiles alike. It is not a pretty picture, but it does accurately depict the world that we live in. A world that spins on an axis of evil and deceit. One in which people, out of self-interest, use their tongues to flatter and to deceive others. A world in which people are slandered and destroyed by the malicious words of others. Apparently, someone once said, I have often regretted my speech, but never my silence. On the strength of what Paul was saying in verses 13 and 14, I feel certain that we can all relate to those words. Not regretting our silence, but regretting it when we open our mouths. Let's have a look at verses 15 and 16. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. So it's not just our words that condemn us, our actions do as well. Not just our throats, our lips, our mouths, but also our feet. As Paul said, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. 
Again, this is the way of the world. As the Bible commentator Robert Haldane said, such is a just description of man's ferocity which fills the world with animosities, quarrels, hatred in the private connections of families and neighbourhoods and with revolutions and wars and murders among nations. The most savage animals do not destroy so many of their own species to appease their hunger as man destroys of his fellows to satisfy his ambition, his revenge or his greed. So animals kill one another for hunger but we kill one another for ambition, revenge and greed. The wickedness of man knows no bounds and his capacity to commit acts of violence were evident in Noah's time about four and a half thousand years ago. Details of what happened in Noah's time are given in Genesis chapter 6. For example, in verse 5 of Genesis chapter 6, it is written, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. If you Let me just say that again, but that could be shortened. What it does not say is that every thought of his heart was only evil continually, as if to emphasise it. What it actually says is that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And in verse 11, it is written, The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. This was, as I say, four and a half thousand years ago, or thereabouts. You really would have to ask yourself, has anything really changed? The more you appreciate just how wicked the heart is and how inclined man is to shed blood, the more you will understand that it is only God's restraining grace that prevents our streets from quite literally being red with blood. I'm talking about here on our little island as much as anywhere else in the world. For example, you to give you some idea of just how violent and how wicked this world is, consider the Holocaust where it is said that about 6 million Jews were rounded up and put to death between 1941 and 1945. About 6 million. Or consider the killing fields of Cambodia, where more than a million people were killed by the communist Khmer Rouge under the leadership of Pol Pot between 1975 and 1979. And every day the media brings us details of new acts of violence, bloodshed and death in various parts of the world. For example, it would seem that at present, I'd say it would seem, it certainly seems to me that at present, the most powerful country in the world, 
the United States of America is being destroyed by gratuitous violence and bloodshed which is being committed by its own citizens as they are manipulated and as they receive encouragement from people in high places. For me, the greatest sign of just how wicked the heart is and how swift the feet are to shed blood in violation of our God-given duty to love our neighbour as ourselves is the killing of unborn babies. We live in a so-called civilised society where murdering babies is not only lawful, but also any opposition to it is met with an outpouring of anger and vitriol from the abortionists. However, when it comes to hearts being desperately wicked, and feet being swift to shed blood, the greatest sign must surely be about 2,000 years ago when the Lord Jesus Christ was blindfolded and buffeted by the Jewish religious leaders and their servants. They spat in his face. They mocked him, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? The Roman soldiers crowned Jesus with thorns and they paid mock homage to him. They scourged him and he was nailed to a wooden cross and he was lifted up to die. The soldiers mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar. The baying crowd gaped upon him with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. Those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with Jesus reviled him with the same thing. I wonder... In light of what Paul said in Romans chapter 3 about the universality of sin, is there anyone in here who imagines that without the grace of God working in them, they would have been any different had they been there at Calvary where Jesus was crucified? Putting it another way, Is there anyone in here now who thinks, well, what Paul was saying, I get it, but he's certainly not referring to me here. If that's what you're thinking, you have misunderstood it. Because you've got to, you've got to look to where all of this stuff, the, 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 the bile, the vitriol that comes out of the throat, the feet that are swift to shed blood, where does that all come from? Desperately wicked hearts. And that is an apt description of people born into this world 
with sin. People like you and like me. The brutality and the violence meted out on the incarnate Son of God was so extensive, by the way, that it is written in Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 14, his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. In other words, Jesus was so badly beaten that he barely retained any resemblance of a man. Back to Romans chapter 3, in verse 15, Paul said, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Christians, they thank God that they've been redeemed with the precious blood that was shed at the cross, when by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, Jesus was taken and with by wicked hands he was crucified and slain. Let's have a look now, we'll move on, we'll look at verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Nations have various deterrents in place, such as what? Such as the police, courts, judges, financial penalties, prison terms, and even the death penalty in some countries. And that is because people with their desperately wicked hearts have a natural inclination to spew out the poison of asps from their mouths like a volcanic eruption and to shed blood with their feet. However, when people have a fear of the police, the judges and the consequences of getting caught and punished, they are mild, they're more likely to be restrained in their wickedness. We don't have police and judges and courts because we're good, obviously. We have all of these things in place because we are bad. However, it's becoming increasingly evident that people are now much less likely to fear the police and the judges whom they can see and the attendant threat of punishment when they do wrong. In fact, in the UK and in various other countries, far from fearing the police, there has been a massive increase in gratuitous violence against the police. Only last week, wasn't it, someone walked up to a police car in America and shot the two occupants. More broadly, violent crime figures are going through the roof. For example, in London, the number of violent crimes that have been recorded have increased by about 60% in the last 10 years. That's a massive increase. When it comes to fearing God, whom people cannot see, it is written in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Let's face it, if people do not fear the police and so on, whom they can see and that are in place in order to deter mouths from fulfilling the lusts of desperately wicked hearts 
and feet from shedding blood, then there is not going to be a fear of God uh, before the eyes of people who suppress the truth about God. They say that there is no God and they couldn't care less about God. As has been said by the Bible commentator Richard Lensky, the eyes do not see God and so tongue, feet, etc. act as if he were not. That's what we have in our society. There is no God. Show me God and I'll believe you. Yeah, it takes us back to chapter one, doesn't it, of Paul's letter that God has made himself known by what he has created. But people in their ungodliness and their in, in their unrighteousness suppress the truth about God. And they simply say there is no God. So there is no fear of God before their eyes. Fearing God is something that comes up time and time again in the Bible and it is presented as a very positive thing. We don't have to shy away from it in conversation, Christians. We talk about the love of God. We ought to be able to talk about the fear of God as well. For example, in Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 27, it is written, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. Sounds very positive to me, that. If you are a Christian, not only do you have a love that seeks to please God, your Heavenly Father, and to do His will, but also you have a fear that keeps you from doing your will. That that fear is not a fear of punishment, not a fear of damnation, rather it is a reverence for God. And it is one that sees God for who he is, the creator of heaven and earth. You of all people, dear Christian, you should be able to see that God is the creator of all things. And he is to be reverenced and had in fear in the assembly of the saints. And that fear, that reverential fear, ought to make you shrink from doing your own will in defiance of doing the will of God. Just as a love for God is God-given, so too is a reverential fear of him. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 40, the Lord made the following promise to Israel. He said, And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. That promise of God to put his fear in hearts is one of the distinguishing promises of the new covenant of which the Lord Jesus Christ is mediator. We'll have a look at verse 19 now. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped 
and all the world may become guilty before God. At the beginning of chapter 3, Paul said that the chief advantage of the Jews was that to them were committed the oracles of God, the Old Testament scriptures. What followed was that Paul quoted from the Old Testament book of Psalms, Proverbs and Isaiah as he proved the sinfulness of both Jews and Gentiles. Therefore, in verse 19, Paul was saying that the whole world and not just the Jews are subject to the judgment of God having clearly proved it from the oracles of God. Not not just the when he says the law here in verse 19 it's not just the ten commandments that you need think of all that he's been quoting in these verses it comes from the book of psalms the book of jeremiah the old testament the oracles of god that were committed to the jews and those same oracles they 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 expose the guilt of jews and gentiles alike Therefore, in verse 19, Paul was saying that the whole world and not just the Jews are subject to the judgment of God. Having clearly proved it from the Old Testament that was entrusted to the Jews and which you now have on your laps. Having been faithfully preserved over all these years. Finally, we'll look at verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul declared that grand conclusion that no one will be justified before God through observing the law. Rather, through the law, is the realisation of our sin and our guilt before God. A person is justified in God's sight when when God declares that the, the demands of his law have been satisfied and that there are therefore no more grounds for condemnation. It's a declaration from God that this person has fulfilled my law. Paul has very, very adequately shown that none of us satisfies those holy and righteous demands of God's law. None of us. As the Bible commentator William Hendrickson said, the law with its demand of nothing less than moral and spiritual perfection, a state to which man in his own power can never attain creates in him a dreadful, mortifying sense of sin, a feeling of doom, total and everlasting. Note that Paul was not saying that justification is impossible if the law is fully kept. He doesn't say that. To say that would be a contradiction of chapter 2 and verse 13, where he had already said, the doers of the law shall be justified. 
That's a true statement. The doers of the law shall be justified. But what he's also saying here in this grand conclusion is that none of us are doers of that law. Finally, I don't want to leave anyone with the impression that the law is a bad thing because it is the knowledge of sin. And that is a good thing. That was the mistake of the Jews. They thought it was a bad thing. They may have argued that their being entrusted with the oracles of God was of no use to them. It did them no favours. The only thing it served to do was expose their sin and their guilt. These religious Jews, self-righteous Jews, who Paul showed very clearly, you've got the oracles of God, the law, you go around teaching people, you go around judging people according to that law, but you're guilty of breaking that law. Well, that's actually a good thing to know. And if you can recognise that you are guilty of breaking God's law, that is a very good thing. Next week, as we continue with Paul's epistle to the Romans, we shall consider the Lord Jesus Christ who perfectly fulfilled the law's demands in life and in death for all who recognise my feet are quick to to shed blood. When I open my mouth, I say things that I shouldn't say. I've got a wicked heart. I'm a, I'm a sinner before God. And next week we're going to be looking at the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who fulfilled the law's demands perfectly in life and in death for all who repent of their sins and trust in him. People who are trusting in Jesus for their righteousness before God. But in advance of that, may each one of us here be people who can stand before God and accepted in his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who lived a perfect life of obedience and he was obedient unto the death of the cross for those he came to save. Amen.